Hello, Lion Click Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Lion Click Thoughts Podcast. Hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Welcome back to another episode of the show, episode 203, and I'm very excited for today's guest. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that every Monday I put out the Prep List Items newsletter. This is a newsletter that you can get by going to lionclickthoughts.com, putting in your email at the top of the page, and hitting subscribe, and this will be a newsletter with all things food industry. All the different uh, going-ons that I see within the industry, whether it be job reports, AI, new tech, new ingredients, different stories, and everything else in between. So go check it out at lineclickthoughts.com. Also, if you're listening on Apple or Spotify, please leave a review. It lets me get better, helps me know what you guys are liking, disliking, and just lets me become a better bot podcaster and also helps the show grow. My guest today is Chef Brother Luck. He's an acclaimed restaurateur from Colorado Springs, Colorado, and is a renowned figure in the culinary world. With James Beard nomination under his belt, Brother has also become a fan favorite on popular cooking shows like Top Chef, Chopped, and Beat Bobby Flay. He's been featured in various publications, including Food & Wine, Magazine, and has made appearances on national television programs, such as The Rachel Ray Show and The Today Show. But Brother's influence extends beyond the kitchen. As a passionate advocate for mental health awareness, he frequently shares his journey through his highly reviewed memoir, No Luck's Given, Life is Hard But There is Hope, which I will be putting a link in the description of this episode down below. Brother's passion for mentorship and creating a safe space for discussions about mental health is matched only by his dedication to inspiring large audiences on stage and online. Some links to his social media and website. His website is chefbrotherluck.com, which will be linked below. And all of his tags are at chefbrotherluck on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Great episode today. Almost an hour long. I just want to say, first off, very grateful to Chef for coming on the show and for talking to me. He goes in detail about what it means to be a food business operator, what it means to be a chef, what it means to advocate for mental health within the restaurant industry. He's so open. He's so wise in what he says about, I think, so many different things. And I just genuinely enjoyed this conversation with him. I think when you achieve uh, the success he's achieved and you're still looking to push, you're still looking to help people out, but more importantly, you're still willing to be open with the information that's helped you get there and you're willing to share that with other people. That's just a testament to, I think, what he wants out of the industry and what he wants for the people that are coming up in the industry. So I really want to thank Chef for coming on the show. I think he shared a ton of great insight. I feel like if you just started in the industry, you need to listen to this episode. If you've been in the industry for 30 years, you need to listen to it. He has so much valuable information. I think you'll love his story. And we really just get into his perception of food, perception of the industry, mental health, and so much more. It really is a wide-ranging conversation. So thank you all for listening. Please go check out his memoir. I really hope you read it go to the link below and also just go check out his work check out his instagram he shares a lot of great food related content and of course if you're in the uh the area go check out his restaurants thank you chef for coming on thank you all for listening and here we go deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And then, uh, can't access your video. There we go. 
Awesome. Welcome to the show. If you want to start off by uh, introducing yourself, that'd be great. Yeah, well, my name is Brother Luck. That is my real name. I am a chef, owner, author, TV personality, entrepreneur, kind of all of the above, depending on which day it is. I've uh, been in the business for about 25 plus years and, uh, you know, sharing my story, helping others, inspiring others. So excited to be on the, on the podcast today. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, starting out with kind of just a real quick background on, you know, where you, kind of what I guess we'll start with where you're from and what food was like growing up for you for your like first 10 to 15 years growing up. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up in the Bay Area. So uh, originally from San Francisco, I grew up in Oakland, Vallejo, you know, pretty much all over the East Bay. And, uh, you know, my family's Creole and Cajun. So we knew Southern food. We knew dirty rice. We knew gumbo. Uh, that was a big part of, of around the table. But living in San Francisco, living in the Bay Area, you're surrounded by culture. You're surrounded by water. Um, so fresh seafood, Asian, Asian cultures. You know, we, we grew up just outside of Japantown and Chinatown. So uh, they were heavily, uh, they, were, they were really big influences in my career early on. Uh, that kind of shaped my love of food. Uh, you know, when I was 14 years old, I got into the restaurant industry out of necessity. It wasn't that I wanted to become a chef. It was uh, my father had passed away. My mother wasn't around. And I needed uh, to find security. And, you know, a steak sandwich and some cash in your pocket for washing dishes, it's a good place to start. Definitely. Sorry to hear about your dad. Um, it's definitely probably really traumatic and yeah, I don't know. My dad's been such a, my mom and dad have both been integral parts of my life. So, um, for you, was, uh, he at all any guiding light in regards to food for you? Do you have any food memories with him growing up or your mom yeah, or anyone in general? Both, both of my parents were really good cooks. Um, you know, my father mm -hmm. was a great baker. So I, I think that's one of the things I think about is, you know, him standing in the kitchen, you know, especially on those holidays, baking cookies and pies and cakes you know, he, he had a sweet tooth, so it was always something going on in there. <laughs> Is there certain cookies um, or pies? Like, do you have, like, any recipes that were certain I, to his? I have a couple, and, it's, it, you know, it's unique because he passed away so young. Um, I never really had a chance to talk to him as, a, as, a, as an adult, let alone a chef. So mm -hmm. um, he had actually sent my grandmother in Louisiana a couple of recipes uh, written by hand, by mail. And I had actually wow. found them when I was in her house before she passed away. Um, I found them in her recipe book. So I actually cam scanned them and saved them. And I've, I've made a few of them, which is which is pretty cool. But his, his chocolate chip cookies are, are delicious, one of my favorites. Um, his dirty rice recipe is one of my most treasured dishes. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a crazy story behind that dish and that, that you know, how I got that recipe from him. Um, and every time I cook it, you know, we're channeling channeling our past so mm -hmm. you know I, I can i can hear him i can i can i can smell you know his laughter and i, I think there's something special about that with food yeah definitely yeah for food for me i kind of have those same memories my grandfather being one of the more integral people in my life cooking wise and you know him making cookies you know always been fitzels during christmas and you know those like always stick with me you mentioned the crazy story of getting your dad's recipe is that is the crazy story him hand sending the cards or is there something that went along with no, that as well? It was a you know it was a fifth grade. It was right before he passed away, probably about a month before he passed away. Uh, we were tasked as the class to put together a fifth grade recipe cookbook, 
and you mm. were to go home and ask for a family recipe. So when I went home, I said, you know, Dad, I need a recipe. And he gave me his recipe for dirty rice. And he, he wrote it out. And I took it to school. And I remember being so embarrassed because it was like livers and gizzards and bell peppers and onions. It was like nothing. Everyone else had like lasagna and sugar snickerdoodles. Like, um, I didn't realize what he was giving me at that time, which is our heritage, which is the the blend of, of African and French and European all in that Louisiana corridor. Like, there's something very special about the food that comes out of that, that part of the U S and, um, I cherish that recipe. I didn't cook that recipe for a lot of people for a number of years. I just kind of held on to it. I still have that great cookbook. And it wasn't until I was on top chef where they asked us to do a heritage challenge where I actually cooked that in public. Um, you know, that was one of those moments where it was like, wow, you know, I, I finally get it. Yeah, definitely. And for you, just going back to the Creole, um, kind of your heritage and the cooking, uh, was I'm from the East Coast, so I don't really know much of the West Coast, but being in the Bay Area, is there a lot of like Creole cooking like establishment out there, or is it kind of just was your family thing and they moved there? Uh, what kind of led to that style of cooking? Yeah, a lot of a lot of my family migrated out there. Um, you know, our, our roots are Louisiana, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and um, they just kind of migrated towards California for for a number of years. And uh, it was special because you know my, my father had eight siblings, so I grew up with a lot of cousins, and uh, we're a very big family. And you know, to to have a Cajun grandmother, to have a Creole grandmother, um, that's two completely different styles of food from Louisiana. And uh, mm. I got to explore them both growing up, which is which is really uni- unique. And as a chef, you know, it's, it's probably one of my favorite parts is to kind of look at, you know, my story, my people, and and really understand the food and and the why of the food. I mean, you know, Southern food is unique because you have French chefs who taught African slaves how to prepare things for the plantations, and then you have all of this trade happening from from these passages that ended up in that Gulf. Uh, it's it's a, it's a melting pot, and I think that's what's really unique about you know Creole Cajun food here in this country. You mentioned age fourteen, needing to work, also needing food. Um, what was what were the first few years of restaurants like for you? Did you like them? You, you went out of them in necessity, but did you like them right away? Were they daunting? Um, obviously, you were really young going into them. So, what was what were those first first few years like for you in restaurants? You know, my first few years in the restaurant industry, um, I was hardened by the streets. So I already had an edge. I already had a thick skin. Um, I wasn't afraid to say what I had to say or defend myself. And I think in a restaurant, especially at that time, uh, restaurants were tough. And, you know, you bond really quick between the fire. You bond really quick between the printer and the tickets. This is, this is something that I, I found, which was family. And finding family in restaurants, I chased that for a long time uh, because it's really the only family that I knew. So it's it's the one that I put all my time and effort into, and it's the relationships that I built. I mean, you know, my wife of 20 years, we met in one of the first restaurants I worked in. Hmm. That's definitely interesting. I, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you look at your career and how it's spanned and the success you've had and whatnot. And going into kind of conversations later about mental health and kind of changes in the industry, uh, for you, like being in restaurants at that age and like 
growing up in them and becoming more like a chef and your career being so food focused, how do you think you've approached the food industry in a way that's allowed you to be open to change or new ideas? Because a lot of people that spend years and decades in the industry become hardened and kind of just become accepting and become like, this is the way and this is the way it's always been. So this is the way it should always be. But obviously you have a very different outlook on that. So how did you cultivate that throughout your years? Because you didn't just wake up one day and you're just like, this has to change. Like you obviously are the type of person that is able to keep an open mind even in hard situations. Yeah. You know, I, I think for me, I grew up with a lot of, of pain. I grew up with a lot of struggle. I grew up with a lot of, of abuse and neglect and, and things of that nature. There's a, there's a lot of heartache there. So I think when you have individuals who come from that kind of background, that kind of upbringing, we want to naturally do the exact opposite as we become older. We have the ability to control our situation. And mm -hmm. as I grew in the restaurant industry, I stepped into management roles. And as a manager, I realized I didn't have to emulate the chefs that I had worked for previously. I didn't have to just scream. I didn't have to be them. I would make enough mistakes and learn from enough people to eventually be confident enough in myself to develop my own style and embrace that style. At some point in my career, that transitioned to ownership. And I think ownership is where I realized if you're the one spending the money, you have the ability to control the situation. And, you know, I've made tons of mistakes as an owner, but I've also been able to, to make impact. And I think when we talk about restaurants, we talk about restaurant culture, it is about giving back. It's about giving back to the people, the people of your community. So I make the time, I make the effort. Uh, I want to help others who struggled like I struggled, who are struggling like I, I was. Um, I, I want to create an environment that isn't just built on negativity or taking advantage of people or not listening to people or, you know, just turn and burn bodies. Like we, we, we've damaged so many people in this industry for so many years. I mean, you're talking generations at this point why why do we continue to do that if we, we talk about labor shortages? I mean, of course, no one wants to work in that kind of environment. So we have yeah. to change. And it's only it's only going to change if you do something about it. And for me, I needed to be the one spending the money to be able to do something about it. Definitely. Going for your um, going from working kitchens, working your way up, you mentioned getting into managerial roles and then obviously moving pat like, into ownership roles. What do you think, as you've gone along those paths, what do you think holds people back from making that jump? Because I know a lot, I've talked to a lot of people through the page, and I've talked to a lot of people that often there's almost like the self-limiting, uh, I guess, attribute a lot of people have, where it's like, oh, I'm not ready yet, or oh, it's like, no one's told me that I could be a manager yet. And I find that a lot of people who are managers, who, are, who are, like, take the ownership risk, just have to go for it. So what do you kind of notice as you kind of go along this path? What do you notice kind of holds people back into their into like stagnant roles and stagnant positions? Barring poor management, poor leadership, obviously that's a big factor for a lot of people. But if someone has those opportunities and they're not taking them, what have you noticed about those types of people? I think we are our own worst enemies. And when it comes to taking on new roles, new positions – we let our own fear become the dominant, and usually we are the voice of that fear. It's that internal struggle, that internal sound that you have that you want to drown out. You want to turn the radio up. You want to play the TV. You want to do whatever you can to distract or numb what's going on inside because we don't like the lies that we're telling ourselves. 
And sometimes we call victims who agree with those lies. So I think it's important for people to realize that you are good enough. There is only one you. There's, there's no other version of you which makes you special and authentic. But you have to find that confidence to embrace that fear. You have to be able to get past that fear. You have to, to understand that the fear will never go away. It's always going to exist. And many of us have that fear every day. I'm scared every day. I'm scared as an owner because it's a new role for me. You know, I, I've been a chef for so long. I naturally hide in the kitchen. But my responsibilities are to run the business. It's to push the brand forward. It's to ensure that I'm taking care of the livelihood of every one of my team members. So that fear exists with so many people in those positions. When you get into those positions, you'll realize no one has it figured out. There's no book. There's no right way to do things. You will make mistakes, but you have to learn from them. And you can't afford to make them two and three times because they're very costly, you know, whether it's mentally, financially, or physically. Um, don't be afraid to go for them. I think we limit ourselves sometimes, me included. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely relate to that. And we talk about financially, and that's one point I've often brought up on Line Cook Thoughts is financial literacy in the restaurant industry and the idea of business. I think from my own experience, going through culinary school, getting into the industry, my biggest focus was on like fine dining, cool food, like starting out, like and not a care in the world on how much it costs to get to the plate, or what it costs person-wise to get to the plate. For you as an owner and as someone who's had to worry about like finances, um, I think there's like a lack of understanding for people that start out as cooks and whatnot of how big of a role that is for you. And obviously it's probably pretty like, like obvious as an owner, but if you could kind of explain how you prioritize looking at financial work compared to food, I think that would be really beneficial. Yeah, I think your your passion for your craft will not pay your bills, but your passion for people will. And I think that's a great way to look at it. Um, as, as someone who wanted to be the next Thomas Keller or Eric Repaired or Danielle Balud, who strive to chase chefs like Marcus Samuelson and, and be on that level of cooking constantly and then try to open an empire around that, you have to realize that there's a separation of business versus passion uh, when it comes to our craft. And why do you think so many of these chefs have the burger chain concepts and the fried chicken chain concepts? And they're diversifying to, to ensure that they have the funds to be able to play in their fine dining restaurants. And I, I mm. think, you know, Ferran Adria said it best when, when discussing El Boli is, I don't make money in El Boli. And they, they asked the question, the, the, the interview um, person asked the question, said, what do you mean? You're the number one restaurant in the world, and you charge an astronomical amount of money for people to dine here. And he said, I don't make my money in the restaurant. And restaurants aren't about making money. Restaurants are about uh, a reference to my brand. I make my money in other endorsements, my books, my products, my texturas, my appearances. This is where I make my money. So... You have to diversify if you're going to step into that ownership role. Um, but also remember, too, that if 90% of restaurants fail, then why are you following that business plan? Like, it doesn't mm -hmm. work. You have, to, you have to think outside the box. You have to adapt and evolve. 
it's so crazy that we're literally having this conversation right now because right before I jumped on this call, I was sending an email to someone who has told me they would be a mentor to me. And I didn't know what to ask of them because they weren't a chef. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm, I'm literally in the middle of composing an email that says, can you be a financial business mentor for me? Because hmm. I need to know how to grow and build from the brand that I've, I've started. It's not about making money. How do I grow the money? How do I, how do I take it to the next level? I need mentorship yeah. on that side now. So, you know, don't be afraid to reach out and ask people the right questions. Yeah, I think financial literacy, because when I graduated culinary school, I worked in restaurants, and then I worked for um, a restaurant group and was doing more so like uh, manager and training than was managing a kitchen. And a lot of my time was spent like managing finances and managing food costs and labor costs. And, you know, it was kind of like, damn, I knew this was important, but I didn't know this was like the end all be all to like the success of the business. Like you, you go into the food and you're like, oh, I'm just going to make really great food and people will pay whatever. And even like looking at Ferran Adria and what he said, like, no, obviously there's, that's not the case. And I think that for me hearing you speak on that is really important. And for people listening, that's important because we, like, I know a lot of people hear financials, financials, and then like they glaze over. It's like, oh, that's not important, but it's so integral. And it's so just integral, not only to like, the owning in a restaurant and doing the food you want to do, but also like, I think you mentioned this in the beginning, being able to pay your people fairly, being able to support the people that work for you and you employ. So yeah, I appreciate you going into it. Well, even think about it this way. I mean, for for all my hip hop heads out there, if it don't make dollars, it don't make sense. Without the money, there is no people without the money. There is no product. There's no food to cook. There's no place to cook in. The money is extremely important. The best leaders you will work for will be good at three things. One, they will be great at financials. They understand how to make the money, how much we make in a day, how much we spend in a day, how much is going to be reinvested into the business. Two, they're good at the people. They understand how to grow people, discipline people, mentor people, inspire people. Third part is their product. They're good at their craft. So... I think most of the time when we work for bad leaders, it's because they're only focused on one, maybe two areas. You know, they might be a really good money person, but they suck at people, you know, and their food's decent. So I think you have to focus on all three. Yeah. And going into focusing on all three, for you as a chef, for you as someone trying to build your brand, grow your brand, you have obviously have done a good job of that, exposing yourself to different media outlets. Uh, Top Chef going on different shows, being you know featured with James Beard, Food and Wine. So obviously that has all been you working towards building your brand. Obviously the enjoyment of the process as well, and just like going into different areas. Um, and I think a lot of you know I think there was this interest, and I grew up. I, I mean I was born in like the late nineties, so growing up like two, late two thousands, starting to get interested in food. Twenty um, tens cooking is like celebrity chef was a bad term. Or, like, anything revolving around TV is a bad term. But now you have, like, chefs, like, craving to be social media influencers. You have people that just want that intimate channel where they can create food. Like, I think of Joshua Weissman, Binging with Babish. Like, different. Like, it's totally flipped. So, for you, though, like, you started a lot of your media in some of the 2010s and, like, in that era. What what were you? What was in your mind about going into food media? Because I don't know that pre, like, this major TikTok social media push – it was always like 
not every chef wanted to do that. And there's a lot of value in it, but I feel like a lot of people limited it themselves based on perceptions of others, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think there was an aha moment for me in 2010, 2011. I was working in Chicago, and I was reading Michael Roman's uh, The Reach of a Chef, which is his third mm-hmm. third book. Um, great to, book. Great book. And there's a section there where he talks about the chef as a CEO. And it stood out to me because when you look at the Emeralds, you look at the Rachel Rage, you look at the Bobby Flays, these are not chefs. These are CEOs of brands. And mm. you had this you had this boom with social media to where many of these chefs who were very skilled in kitchens or, or very uh, accredited found an opportunity to build brands and diversify. And, and that's where we are right now is it's, it's not that I, I – I'm not a chef. I, I have 25 plus years. You know, I tell my cooks, like some of y'all, I've been cooking longer than you've been alive. But yeah. it's no longer about just that. If we are going to survive as a company, I have to diversify, meaning I've got to get on TikTok and do the cooking demos. I've got to go film the TV shows to, to spread brand awareness, to bring more customers into the restaurants, to book more catering gigs. I have to have a big enough presence with these relationships to be able to say, Hey, I want to do a book with you, or I want to do a collaboration with you, which then leads to more endorsement deals, more product deals, all these things come together, but it's about building a brand. And for me, my restaurants aren't where I make my money. My restaurants are actually my reference point to what I'm talking about. So my priority within my restaurants is, you know, yes, we need to make money to survive, we don't want to lose money. Yeah. But also, when when I get on stage and I talk about mental health to some Fortune 500 company on stage, and you know I'm in a suit and tie, and we're talking about suicide and depression and how hospitality industry is broken and what we're doing to change it, people have to be able to go to my restaurants and actually hear that from a server or hear that from a cook. Like that, that is the reference point to the brand. It's where they experience the brand first and foremost. The restaurants are a product of the brand. And I think we have to think more that way beyond just chef. I don't want to teach my cooks to be chefs. I want to teach them to be owners. I want to teach them to be entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship is being on stage. You have to be on stage. You have to be good in front of a camera. You have to be able to talk to a table. You have to be able to entertain. If you don't have that ability, you're not going to be able to diversify into so many different markets, work with so many different people. Thinking of the going off of what you just said about the role of being the chef being a CEO, I think the question I've always wondered, and like for yourself, you have three locations. I'm correct in that. You have the you have four the pub and then the private dining experience. Um, for yourself, that is a lot of team members across those locations, and then there's obviously leadership that's involved in that. How do you assess, and how have you learned to put trust in? an executive chef or a leader in your like kitchens while you're gone. Like, what do you like, what is that process like for you and how have you been able to do that? Because I know a lot of chefs struggle with that part of letting go. Yeah. I mean, they, you're not going to find you in any of your leaders period. So stop looking. I, I think that's an, un, that's an unrealistic thing. No one can be you. You're you. And you've gotten to your level of ownership or leadership because of 
who you are. The thing is, is you have to hire mindset and train skill set. And I'd rather hire good people and train them to do the job than to have someone who could do the job and be a horrible person. Because my biggest blunders and struggles that I've had have been the leaders that I've hired, the people that represent me when I'm not around. So um, I think that's the first part is make sure you have really good people before you focus on their resume and their background and their skill set. Um, the second piece, I think, is... Is there anything you... Not to cut you off, but is there anything you... When looking for good people, is there any, like, test for you or question? Or Obviously, it's more than just a question, but are there any indicators that you look for when you're like, okay, I think this person is going to be a good, of good character? Yeah, I think, I think Charlie Trotter said it best. I can ask someone to go mop that corner of the, of the restaurant and it'll tell me everything I need to know about who they are. And then I can spend five minutes sitting down talking about music and interests and family life. And I'll make my decision based on that. You know, I'm looking for people. When I hire someone, I'm hiring you and your family because that's how I have to think about it because I have to know you as you and your family because I need to know what's going on with you to, to, to motivate you, to, to grow you, to develop you. I need to know what your goals are. What is your why? Why are you coming to work every day? You know, who are you taking mm -hmm. care of? These, these things matter the most. So I think it's the personal connection versus, you know, which Michelin restaurant you work for or which notable chef is going to answer the phone when I call and give you good, yeah. you know, good accolades. So um, I think that's a, that's a key piece. But I think also when it comes to leadership and, and being able to run multiple projects is you have to have measurable expectations. You know, if you walk into a kitchen and you say, I need you to clean the walk-in. And then you come back two hours later and you go into the cooler and the walk-in's not clean. And you walk up to that cook and you go, why, why didn't you clean this walk-in? Why didn't you pull all these, these, these uh, speed carts out? Why didn't you deck brush this thing? Why didn't you mop it? Why didn't you remove all the cardboard boxes, put everything in the Lexons? Why didn't you change the tape on everything? Well, chef, you didn't say that. So you have to be so clear on your measurable expectations and say, I want you to clean this walk-in and I want all this Metro pulled out. I want all these tapes changed over. I want all these Lexons fresh. I will be back in two hours to check it. If you don't come back in those two hours and check it, you're not following up on your own measurement. And that's where you will mm. lose it. Most, most leaders forget the paperwork. They don't want to do the paperwork. They don't want to do the follow-up. They bark. They don't want the bite. And, and that's where I think it's so important is to make sure that you follow up on whatever kind of communication you're giving. Don't drop the ball because you're too busy. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have had leaders like that. I've had leaders like you've mentioned where they'll come in and they'll, you know, say they want it done a certain way and they'll sure enough be back in that time frame. So for you looking for people to leaders in your own circle of leaving restaurants so good character obviously clear instruction is there anything else that you would say makes someone capable of managing kind of being at you while you're not there you have to learn to manage up most most leaders just manage down they don't manage across and they definitely don't manage up most of the time you can't accomplish your job as a leader if you don't understand the why of person above you, the owner, the CEO, the management team, the executive team, whoever it is, if you do not understand their goals, then how are you ever going to achieve your goals? 
because mm-hmm. your success is based on your performance and your performance is achieving what they want to achieve. If you don't know what they want, then how do you actually get to the next level? So, you know, I had an all staff meeting um, on Saturday and I shared my whys with, uh, with my front of the house team. And I needed them, I needed them all, it was my front and back of the house team, but I needed them all to, to yeah, and I wrote it down, I'll share it with you. I needed them all right. to all understand like what were my goals. My number one goal was to protect the personal and financial livelihood of everyone who works for us. We have to make the money. It protects everyone personally and financially. We have to take care of them. Um, two, we have to elevate our culinary service standards to five diamond, period. Just because you can't be a Michelin or you can't be a five diamond property doesn't mean you can't execute the standards, maintain the standards, set the rules within yourselves. Uh, I want to enhance the guest experience personally and visually. I want you to be telling a story. I tell stories. I'm a great storyteller. But that's one of the things about being on stage is you can perform. And performance is a dialogue. Performance is a story. It's a script. You have to be really good at your storytelling. So I want my staff to constantly be able to do that visually and personally. Um, because those are, those are the three main things that I'm trying to do as an owner, um, in, in that restaurant. Yeah. Is it, when you think about, I think food is such a hard medium to do that storytelling in. It's easy and it's hard, right? I think it's easy when you get to a point where it's like an OBE where you're able to kind of, it's a lot of money coming in, a lot of like ingredients you can purchase. Um, but Say for example, your pub um, location. How do you how like it's obviously different from a fine dining perspective. So like, how do you tell a story through food that is not as like it's not like in a fine dining set fine dining setting. It's still well thought out. It's still well presented because I think a lot mm-hmm. of chefs think because they don't have a fine dining restaurant, they can't make storytelling worthy food. And I know that's not the case. So, so I, I stood back. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday evening from a vantage point within the pub. And I just watched. I watched the interaction of my bartenders because that's the focal point of the dining room. It's a U-shaped bar. They're the focal point. They are on stage. And I watched them work with their heads down and execute drinks and serve. But they were missing the opportunity to tell stories to the people sitting at the bar to, to raise the glass up and, and slowly drizzle things and describe the, what they're doing. You know, oh, this is a beautiful, simple syrup that I made. It's infused with maple and sage, and I put a little bit of coriander in there to give it a kick. Like, this is the storytelling that you have the ability to do, but it's more than just the product. It's also the location. You know, I, I walked onto that bar probably six or seven times that evening, uh, over those evenings each night, just to tell people stories of the space, building the space, what we went through, how we got it open, the struggles of the space, the the changes of the neighborhood, hiring the staff. That is fascinating to a guest. They, they, it's like it's like watching a sitcom for them. They're watching their favorite cooking show live in front of you. They're they're getting their restaurant experience live in front of them while they're enjoying a quality meal, a quality drink. So. I think there's there's more to it than just, you know, I'm telling you this is the the pig whose name was Betsy and we brought her from this farm and all that stuff. 
it's more about like, what did we do as a team together to get it to you right now? That, that story is powerful no matter what location you're in. It's kind of crazy, you know, you, like for me, for example, when I go out to eat, being in industry, being, or, you know, having worked in restaurants and being a part of line cook thoughts, like I don't like want a lot of attention and I, I like, I like to hear stories, but I, I don't, I always am like, I don't want to be a hindrance on servers. I don't want to be a hindrance on cooks. Like I like to ask questions, but I also like to sit back. They won't send back food if it's, unless it's like a completely wrong dish or, you know, something like that. But most diners look for so much more than like we do as chefs or we would do as cooks. Like most diners Mm -hmm. look for an experience where we're, you know, I'm going to a place, I really care about how good the food tastes and maybe the, you know, how it was made and whatnot. Of course I care about the environment, but the general diner cares is so much more. So it's very interesting, I think, for you to say that because I think a lot of, you know, for me, one issue with me being a cook or someone in the back of the house that I kind of got tired with was, my, I would put my plates in the past and then that would kind of be it. I didn't have any interaction and I didn't get to see what the guests thought of it. I didn't get to see how my food related to them. And so for me, that was always a lost thing as a line cook is I'm not getting to actually see the food I'm making mm-hmm. that I'm producing. I'm not getting to see that reaction. So I think it's cool that you kind of support that amongst your staff and kind of show well, that with them. Well, and it's taken a step further too. You know, sometimes we forget that the first guest in our restaurants are our employees Mm -hmm. so we have to make that effort first and foremost with them they are our guests they need to have an experience they need to feel like they're getting their value perception and you know i i think of like we like to make sure a lot of our team members eat in the restaurant you need to see it you need to see it from the other side you need to see it from the guest perspective um It'll make you appreciate what you do more. But even when I worked in hotels, I used to run very large resorts. And I would intentionally look for that cook who was kind of burnt out on the repetition of plate, window, plate, window. And I would take that cook for a walk around the resort. And I would point out the the crab apple trees we had grown on the property or the plum trees we had or the patch of watercress down by the golf course or the bush of mint that was right next to the clubhouse. I would take them to, to see the views that we had on the patio that overlooked the mountain and the golf course. They have to experience what they're a part of to appreciate it and really get re-engaged. Yeah, and I think a lot of, I think, and we, you go back to the being busy. I think a lot of times chefs will say, oh, I'm too busy or there's too much, but you really lose out. And it, for you, I'm sure that took half hour if not maybe 20 minutes it's, it's, it's such an impactful thing too many chefs yeah. don't manage their day and i think banquet chefs are usually the greatest at time management because they're executing so many projects across a property but time management is everything you have to schedule your day and i don't think it's you know we always talk about work-life balance there is no such thing right you just have to find balance like stop trying to schedule work and schedule life schedule everything Schedule your date night, schedule your chores at home, schedule your workout routine, schedule your work stuff, and be strategic in exactly what it is. Definitely. Uh, For you, uh, you, talking about mental health, we've had a lot of conversations about mental health on the podcast. We've had mental health resources, um, just a lot going on with mental health in general. I feel like with Black Cook Thoughts over the four years I've been doing this, 
So for you, I don't want to necessarily ask you, like, I, I, I think we both know, and a lot of people know how mental health could be better in the industry. And I definitely think there's been improvements. For you, what are some gaps you're seeing in 2023 with mental health management in the food industry? I think vulnerability is everything right now. Me too. I'm going through it too. And here's, here's my story. And I think when people hear vulnerability from people they perceive as successful or having it all together or as the leader, um, it changes the way they work and the way they communicate. I think we're having a lot more conversations because of vulnerability. Um, I remember Chris Cosentino telling me this in Aspen uh, right after my first season of Top Chef. And he's like, people treat me different since I started talking about my mental health. And, you know, I've always respected Chris. I've always loved Chris's food, but I've always loved Chris's presence. And I didn't really understood what he meant by that until I started talking about, you know, my depression, my suicide attempts and and the things that I had gone through and and how people kind of treated me a little bit differently. But what keeps me talking about these things is the conversations of the people that say, thank you. Me too. I, I didn't realize I wasn't as crazy as I thought I was. I wasn't going through this all alone. You know, I, I, I thought I was crazy for years because I held it all in. I would never talk about it. You know, I had too much bravado and too many walls put up. Those walls prevented me from actually living a life. Yeah. Do you... I know I definitely have mine. My my big anxiousness, my big anxiety, I, I, I often get into anxiety loops. But for me, I often go to worst case scenario thinking and obsess on that when that's often not the case and often won't be the case in reality of how things will play out. One of my favorite quotes is, we suffer more in imagination than in reality. It's like something I absolutely have to remind myself all the time. For you... Is there a specific um, anxiety type style or is there something for you that you really have uh, struggled with or that you really just maybe it's something that you you know it's like your challenge and how do you kind of address that? Because I think talking about like different anxiety styles is important. And if you're open to share it, I definitely would love to hear kind of, you know, what, yeah. what is I on mean, your mind. A perfect example, I was sharing this with my wife. We were driving up to Aspen Food and Wine for this, this past uh, 40th anniversary. And I had imposter syndrome. I, I feel like, not necessarily an imposter, but undeserving. I didn't deserve to be there. I didn't deserve to be in the clip. I didn't deserve to be in the room. And I'm telling myself this story on the drive up. And I'm freaking myself out, right? I'm getting, you know, my heart's beating faster. My mind's racing. I'm like, you know, people aren't going to talk to me. Like, people aren't going to know who you are. Like, why are you even going? Like, I'm going through all of this in my head. And I had to actually, like, recognize it and then change that scenario of, like, I'm not interested in trying to, to make other people feel good about themselves. I'm trying to make myself feel good about myself. Um and, and I don't need that acceptance anymore. I don't need that validation anymore. Um, I'm already good enough. Yeah, and I chased that for a long time in my career. I mean, television is a perfect example of why I did it. I thought, you know, doing shows like Beat Bobby Flay and Chopped and Top Chef was, was going to give me the accolades that I needed to feel like I was good enough to be a chef. When in reality, I've been a chef for such a long time. I, I, they're, they're very lucky I gave them me, not the other mm. way around. You know, I gave you a piece of me, which you guys all made a lot of money off of. You're welcome. You know, <laughs> so I think there's a there's yeah. a there has to be that realization of like, 
Um, don't tell yourself that lie. And when you do tell yourself that lie, recognize it so you can take yourself out of that situation because that's not the truth. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that I also struggle with imposter syndrome, maybe in different ways. I think for me, it's always been, you know, being someone who is somewhat of a vocal person for people in the food industry. Uh, perfect example is when I was during COVID, I was working in a restaurant, restaurants shut down. I found work in food manufacturing, been doing that ever since. And I remember for the longest time, I was like, well, you, how are you going to do this podcast? Why, like, how are you going to do this? Like, still talk to cooks. And I was like, why don't I just tell my story of kind of where I've been, where I'm going, what I'm looking through. And honestly, like just being able to not only still do this, but also show and tell people that there's more than just restaurants if you ever need it or if you're ever mm-hmm. interested or if you ever like where I was at, where you're just kind of burnt out and done with them at a certain point and you wanted to a change. I think that has been like some of my most impactful or like the things that get the most views are is content pieces around what else is out there in the food world. And I think you yeah. are a perfect blend of that of, yes, you have your restaurants, but you do media, you're an author, like you have all these different aspects and that just doesn't come with staying behind the line and saying, Oh, I'm a true chef. Like, you know, the, the, you can either have your ego with that or you can expand out. And I think that that has been very important for me to kind of not only deal with, with myself, but be able to accept the fact that I did expand out and that's just life. And that's, what a career is and it doesn't always have to be so linear. There's, there's so much power in other titles beyond chef. Chef is a strong title and it has presence to a certain demographic and a certain, certain industry. But I was, you know, when I went through the James Beard bootcamp, um, they taught us about advocacy and to speak as an owner, especially as a representative, a chef, a chef will donate, $50,000 $50,000 a year to various charities between tasting portions and gift certificates and appearances and cooking classes, all the things we do. We do it to so many different organizations all year long. It adds up. And they said, you know, sometimes you barely get a thank you for that $50 gift card. But if you were to pick two of those, those, those groups and say, you know, I am going to donate to these organizations because this is what I believe in. I'm going to do $25,000 donation and time and product over the course of a year each you are now a platinum donor you're now getting respected as a sponsor mm-hmm. the way you should be res- respected but also when you're talking to your to your um your representatives right and from a political standpoint i have power when i walk into a room and i say you know my name is brother luck i am a small business owner and i represent this many of your constituents and i bring this much sales tax revenue to your district that has nothing to do with me saying I'm chef, brother luck. There's power in these different titles, depending on what you're trying to achieve. So I, I've stopped just being stuck on I'm only chef. Now I like saying I'm an author. Now I like saying I'm a motivational speaker. Now I like saying I'm a consultant or I'm an advocacy uh, you know, professional. These things are powerful uh, depending on how you use them and how you portray them. What is a trend, a trope, an ideal in the food industry that you hate, and what is one that you love? Uh, um, a trend that I hate. It doesn't have to be a trend. I, I think, it could be an ideology. Yeah. It could be like any, anything about the food industry that you just really grinds your, grinds your gears. I'm, I'm just – I'm over egos right now, honestly. Like – 
you know, the, the diva, the celebrity, uh, I'm too good to have a conversation. Um, it, it drives me mad because like, one, you're a person, be a person. Two, like most of us came up as cooks. <laughs> There's nothing celebrity about being a cook. Right. And, yeah. and I think like we scrub, we scrub floor drains. We, we, you know, I told the cooks the other day about like, I used to have to clean the grease trap because I couldn't afford to hire the plumber to do it. Like I'm not too good to work and I will never be that kind of celebrity who, you know, is too, too busy or, or unapproachable. Um, and I see it a lot in, in this industry and it's, it's frustrating because I think people forget because their followers go up or, they get so caught up in their social media presence and their television presence that, you know, they lose sight of like what it really is about, what it really means. Um, mm-hmm. So, and then one, I guess. That. No, I mean, I, I definitely agree. I think ego is, you know, I think we all have ego. We all challenge, especially if you're in the food industry. There's always, I feel like, a battle with your own ego. But um, yeah, no, I mean just as someone who's been in the industry and someone who watches others and like, yeah, it, it's interesting. It's interesting for sure to see how ego plays a role in kitchens. It's interesting to see how it plays a role in media. And like for you, like reaching out to you on Instagram, it was so natural to just DM you and be like, Hey, like, would you ever be interested? Like, you know, smaller following on my podcast, cool um, community, but nonetheless, I'm not like food network or Bravo or anything else. And you were just so willing to come on and just chat. So I like appreciate that. Cause it's, it's real authenticity is necessary. And mm-hmm. you know, if there's anything that I always will be on my social media, it's authentic. Like I'm always going to be real. I'm going to tell you the good shit. I'm going to tell you the bad stuff. Like this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm dealing with. Um, this is the fun stuff that's happening. This is the struggle. And I, I think we need more of that because what happens is, especially with social media, we are so, attached to it, connected to it, and it drives so much revenue in so many different facets of our businesses that we begin to measure ourselves against greatest hits, right? Someone is posting their greatest hits. It's not a reality. They're just posting the cool stuff of their life. They're not posting the bad stuff. But we measure ourselves like, oh, I should be doing more of that, or I should be on that trip, or how come I'm not at that event? And we forget to stop and look around and go, oh, man, no, I actually have all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so true. And for you, something that you're passionate about currently, something that you love right now, or something that's just really inspiring you to keep showing up to work? I'm inspired right now tremendously by the effect of my words. And I'm learning the power of my words, whether written or spoken. I've, 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 to put a book out, against every grain, especially to do it independent, to self-publish, uh, when everyone was like, you're on Top Chef, you have to do a cookbook. Uh, no, I want to write about faith. I want to write about ment- mentorship. I want to write, write about my timeline, my journey. I want to talk about suicide, depression. Um, the words have given me so much more confidence in myself to be able to help others. So I'm expanding far beyond just my restaurants now to, to step on stage in front of hundreds of people at a time and talk about these things and actually have people who have nothing to do with the restaurant industry go, wow, I've never heard the term mental mise en place before. You know, because we, as chefs, we live in the problem. We live in the solution. We have to, we train ourselves to think of the solution before it happens. That's your entire mise. Like you're building your station, 
because everything's going to go wrong and you're anticipating it before 7.30 hits. Like, <laughs> and that's an analogy for life. And I think this is why so many chefs are so versatile and can adapt so quick. This is why they don't like us on uh, charity boards and community boards because we don't have time for the excuses. Give me the solution. What are we doing? How, what's the solve? Like, why is this taking so long? And I, I think, yeah. you know, the words are powerful. Definitely, and no no luck's given is the book. I'm, when I do your introduction, I obviously will share that, and I'll have the link in the bio and everything else. So, but um, definitely, everyone go check that out. And I get, yeah, I mean, words are powerful, and you never know. Like, you know, me creating content for a long time, like you never know what's gonna hit and like what people will resonate with. Like, just yeah. like sometimes the weirdest things. Like, I remember, I think I put out like a, a reel a few years ago where it was like for me the most important tool in a kitchen is my notebook and so many people mm-hmm. reached out and shared that and was like oh my god like yeah like totally and i thought it was like this kind of this nerdy thing to say so um no it's you never it's crazy like, no i i told one of my executive chefs i was like you know she's trying to work on social media content and i'm like stop forcing it like the videos i put the most effort into are the ones that flop hardest my, my biggest video was like 6 million views of me teaching a cook how to dice an onion on TikTok. Like, it was literally yeah. just putting the phone against the number 10 can and turning it on while I helped him sharpen his knife, dice an onion. So, like, <laughs> don't overthink it. You know what I mean? Like, content is great, and content lives forever, and it will reach masses that you never expect. Yeah. And for, I guess... You know, one, I guess as we kind of wrap up this conversation, for you with how I found your work is through your content. Honestly, it was, I'd known a little bit about your work with restaurants, but I, I think I saw a post at one point talking about your mental health journey. And I, that is mm-hmm. what really drew me to you was like, there's so much like people out there trying good food, but what stuck out for me to you was your openness of mental health and openness of talking about it. So, like, just to testify to that is like those words is what that's what made me follow you. That's what made me want to have a conversation with you and just have you on the show. I appreciate it, man. I, I always try to be real, and I think this is something that will help a lot of people, uh, especially as we stay open and we stay talking about it. But we have to continue that. You know, we've got to make the uncomfortable normal, um, and we've got to break the the bravado that is in this. Uh, the, the whole numb yourself until the next shift doesn't work and we've had so many friends that have gotten lost to drugs or alcohol or or have just broken or committed suicide in this industry because they're numbing themselves until the next shift because they're not dealing with what's going on because they're too scared to talk about it or they're too ashamed to talk about it and it starts with the people at the top you have to change your leadership style you have to understand that people are like I talked to a chef this morning who, I mean, this guy has been nominated five times for James Beard Award. Um, and he's talking about getting out the industry because he just had another cook kill himself. And it's like, mm. that's heartbreaking. You know, and I know he cares. I know he's a great person. I know he's a great leader. But it's still, mm. this is probably someone who was holding something inside that no one knew about. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. And I think just in general, you know, I've been lucky enough where I haven't lost many to mental health. I feel like I haven't really had to experience that too much, but I've definitely in the past few years have lost some people that I was close to to just untimely deaths or close, like mm-hmm. dying younger than they probably should have and just freak accidents and things like that. And the industry, not promised. it's just like, yeah, tomorrow's not promised. And it's, it's whether it be like through mental health or just be like 
just life in general. Like you never know. So like who, what, what time you have left with someone, what your last interaction will be. So, you know, it's just always something to think about when you're maneuvering through the world. Yeah. I just, I hope when, when my For time's your... up, people just, you know, they remember me for what I did and what impact I made on their lives. That's, that's really the only hopes that I have, you know? Definitely. I want to give you the space to share, um, where, you know, we're, I know we're coming up in time, give you the space to share where people can follow along, whether it be your Instagram, uh, any links or shout outs, or that's the time now for you to share all that. Not so you can check me out, uh, chefbrotherluck.com. I'm at chefbrotherluck across the board. So Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, all that good stuff. Um, that's where you can check me out. I'm always going to be real. I'm always going to be authentic and, uh, I'm going to say what I need to say. And that's just me. It's just me, but you know, I'm, I'm me and you're, you believe that you're good enough. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. Keep working on your craft, keep perfecting yourself, keep growing, you know, stay confident, but don't be egotistical. Oh, well said is my last question for you. I like to end with different questions I've noticed, but for you, is there a song right now, a piece of music that's really got you going that really is like you put it on and you just really feel yourself or you feel inspired or you feel motivated or and any song right now in your head that you've been uh, really enjoying um yeah i'm i'm a, I'm a, I'm a hip-hop head so right now uh conway the machine stressed is probably just a song i'm feeling right now because man we stressed out and everybody's going through it like we got to help each other get through the stress. You know, we're stronger as a pack, not as an individual. Enemy will always take you out when you're an individual much easier. So run with the pack. Awesome. Chef, thank you so much. Absolutely. Appreciate it. So there you have the podcast with Chef Brother Luck. Thank you all again for listening to the show. And thank you to Chef for coming on the show. A friendly reminder to check out his memoir, No Luck's Given. Life is hard, but there is hope. The link to this is in the description of the podcast. Also, if you are listening to this episode and you want more information from Line Cook Thoughts, go to linecookthoughts.com. Hit subscribe after you put your email into the top of the page and get our weekly Monday newsletter. Finally, if you're listening on Apple or Spotify, please leave a review. An honest review is all I ask. It helps the page gain traction, lets me know what you think of the show, and gives me better insight. Thank you all so much. I will see you on the next Line Cook Thoughts podcast.